honest, brutally honest. Trust me, cancer survivor, born. Welcome back to Victim Impact. The series explores a complex Ponzi scheme perpetrated by Rashida Samji. The case has wormed its way through dozens of court proceedings in the Vancouver area since 2012. In the pilot episode, we painted a picture of Samji's scheme in broad strokes. We spoke to some of the many victims who had lost their retirement savings or homes or both as well as some of the many lawyers and other experts involved in untangling this fiasco. Hi, I'm Gavin Chima, one of the researchers for Victim Impact. The podcast is made possible with the support of our donors. We need help. We need your help to raise $2,500 so we can continue the investigation. Log on to conspiracy.ca and click the donate button to make a tax-deductible gift today. A donation of any amount will help us continue researching, recording, and creating the stage production that will shine light on one of the most prolific Ponzi schemes in BC's history and answer the question, how did this happen? Calling it Samji's scheme is shorthand. It wouldn't have been a scam of such scale and complexity without the involvement of Arvind Patel, a former financial advisor at Coast Capital Savings. And maybe a lack of oversight at some financial institutions. But Samji was at the center of the operation, pitching people on a completely fictitious investment, supposedly, with well-known BC wine producers, the Mark Anthony Group. Samji simply got her clients to sign a letter of direction which stated the amount of the investment and with a promise that the money would never leave her notary trust account. The pool of money would essentially be collateral that the wine company could use to expand operations into South America and South Africa. With the money in place, Mark Anthony Group could provide what Samji called a letter of comfort to business partners. They had equity, if there were cash flow issues, etc. Samji told most clients that they would receive an interest payment for 6% of their investment within one month and another 6% within six months. 12% per annum guaranteed. Not bad. Other clients, let's call them her VIP investors, did a whole lot better than that. So, how was she able to sign up over 200 people in this swindle? In the second episode, we're going to focus on drawing a portrait of Rashida Samji herself. In her own words, drawn from investigation transcripts and court testimony, 
and in the words of others. The impressions of those who got a rough sketch of her character by working on the case. I'm Tim Carlson, the writer and host of Victim Impact. Actor Nimet Kanji joins us in this episode to read some of Samji's statements from transcripts. Nimet will also be playing Samji in Theater Conspiracy's stage version of Victim Impact, which premieres in June 2018 at the Colch in Vancouver. Just so you know, and it will come out, it will be proved, I am an innocent party here. Not because I want you to feel sympathetic, but I am a cancer survivor. I've been through a lot in my life, and this is not where I want to be. To be honest with you, and I'm being brutally honest, while I'm, how shall I put it, I'm, you might think if I'm a smart person, I believe I am. I'm also, I think a little bit on the vulnerable or gullible side, which is where are, I think, some issues I need to get sorted out. I, it will come, trust me, because I've been, I've been used as a pawn, and it will come. A few lines spoken by Rashida Samji in the first few minutes of an interview conducted by lawyers for the BC Securities Commission. January 30th, 2012. Samji's scheme had been exposed just days before. Someone at Coast Capital Savings and Credit Union had noticed irregularities in an investment offering coming from their employee, Arvind Patel. They'd sent out an alert to other banks. Someone at Toronto Dominion then looked into Samji's TD accounts and notified the BCSC. The commission called her in to answer questions. She had not yet retained a lawyer. Nervous, frightened, sometimes tearful, Samji is obviously trying to sell herself as a victim, a pawn, a cancer survivor, even as she undercuts her arguments with compulsive lies. The transcript is a fascinating character study. I have a legal background, and that's why I'm really upset with myself. I mean, legally, or the way it looks right now, I'm the one on the hook. I, you know, push comes to shove, I have to take the fall. But like I said, I'm going to come hell or high water. I'm going to make sure people get, like I said, smart. I am, but stupid too. That's the sad part. I've been used as a front. Lines like that are threaded throughout the interview. At this early point in the investigation, commission lawyers Mike Pazunti and Sherman Lyon 
know that a lot of people had been ripped off for millions of dollars. Samji is asked how much money was invested. We're talking about $3 million. Samji then goes off on a philosophical tangent about, quote, leaving a clean slate when I depart this world, end quote. The investigators eventually steer the conversation back to the numbers. When did this investment scheme begin, Samji is asked. About, I think, three and a half years. So that would be sometime in 2008. Actually, it's not three and a half, I'm sorry. It's about two, two years. That three million dollar figure didn't sound right to the lawyers. An initial analysis had said that around 34 million had flowed through her Toronto Dominion account in just the past two years. But Samji sticks with the three million figure. It would be old, old like. I would have to come up with that to pay these people out. Then she's asked how many investors since the inception of the scheme. Some small, some large. I'm guesstimating. I would say about 25. The investigators know that there were more and say so. Well, come go, come go. It's roughly about 25. After a few pages of other tangents about illness and about how investors should all be paid out by the end of the year, Samji is asked if there were more like a hundred investors over the years. So about... Yeah, about 75-ish, I would say. That doesn't, you know, I'm saying 75 at a time because others have gone. I'm saying total, one of the lawyers says. Not at a time, if you were to count them, would it be 75 or would it be more than 75? It would be about 100. That number would change again and again as new details emerged in the case. The interview goes on for perhaps another 10 minutes. The investigators asked about who is using her as a pawn and about someone who demanded their money back just days before. Who is that? He said he was a... I don't know if I want this on the record. Do you mind switching it off? The interview transcript concluded there. Samji was supposed to return for another interview soon after, but she didn't show up. She had overdosed on sleeping pills and spent the night before the hearing in hospital. The next interview that I know of was almost 18 months later. We'll get into that in a bit. got into the, her office the very first time, February 9th, 2012. And I remember uh, phoning our executive director within minutes of being in there, said, Wayne, I'm at a crime scene. It was so instantly clear that this was a con, that this was a, a scam. Her business was in the full-time lying business. That's what it was. It was a business made of lies. That's Ron Usher. A compact, energetic man in his 60s, I'd guess. Both scrappy and cerebral, 
He relishes digging into the minutiae of the case, as well as its social and psychological dimensions. I asked him what made the Samji scam so clear. What was the telling detail? Fraud school 101. It's sort of like engineering school, you know. Shit flows downhill, you know, day one, you know. Fraud school 101 is if you see a bank account where every entry is essentially ends in zero, zero, no real world account is like right. that. And it was, it was hilarious. I showed it to this auditor guy. Oh, this is a fraud. This is a Ponzi scheme. It's like, like one page of one month's statement. Usher is counsel to the Society of Notaries Public of BC. And since 2012, has also worked with the trustee, who is appointed by the court to identify and sell assets, to recover money and get it back to the victims. It's been a long slog of a job. We're kind of like a committee that guides the work of the bankruptcy trustee. We just had our 37th or 38th meeting. Samji's office provided a snapshot of a personality that Usher found difficult to sort out. Her office you know, had every self-help book. You know, she'd been all these courses. She had affirmations and the right. Buddha statue. And it was all wishful thinking. Would someone with a Buddha on their desk lie to me? On the Notary Society's website, there's a line reading, Throughout history, Notaries have been recognized as individuals of impeccable integrity, practicing in a tradition of trust. The Samji case was both insult and injury to the organization. At one point, the society had argued in a civil court action that, technically, Samji wasn't acting as a notary when running her scam. But the judge didn't see it that way. Neither did the appeal judges. Samji had acknowledged in a criminal hearing that her status as a notary was something she hyped and was integral to her success in signing up investors. The letter of direction mentioned funds would be held in her notary trust account, which is audited by the society. And the document was stamped with her notary trust seal. Ironically, she had once served on the Society's Ethics Committee. The Society had to drain its $3 million reserve fund and hand it over to the trustee, leaving the province's 360 notaries to pony up the same amount to replenish the fund. Usher, of course, had previously known Samji casually as a colleague. She had been a long time member of society. She had a fairly prominent, she'd always be with her boyfriend at her conferences. So she was a, certainly a well-known person in the notary right. community. She led a fancy lifestyle. I asked people about that, and, and everyone just, the story was that her family had money, her... Okay. That, that, that was that, everybody had their own explanation of how this person could afford a luxurious, at that time, one of the most expensive condos in Vancouver. That's right. Uh, could afford the life he seemed to lead. Sure. So people thought it was your family. And... He says, in hindsight, there were so many indications to the contrary 
whether it involved the banks or close calls with people connected to Mark Anthony Group. One person told him of regularly seeing Samji over the years in the lobby of a royal bank branch, signing big stacks of bank drafts. I've seen copies of them in court files, all nice round numbers like 20,000, 50,000, or 100,000, all those zeros waving the red flag of fraud. We want to make a coherent story, and we reject all contradictory information. Right. Many people afterwards talked about what they'd noticed, things that were improbable. I remember one guy telling me he was on a golf course, and he, the guy that XT or the, was, oh, that's the uh, finance guy from Mark Anthony. And the guy goes, I'd say, ah, this is great. You know, it's great. It's just terrific. I love I'm investing in your schemes. And the finance guy says, I, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. But I didn't tell anybody. Or my best story, you know, if you've heard this one, is Rashida and her partner are at the opera. And they've taken one of the investors as their guest to the opera. Mark Anthony walks in and sits down a couple rows away. He means Anthony von Mandel, the company's CEO. And the investor said, there's, there's Mark Anthony. I want to go thank him for this you know, tremendous right. opportunity. Rashida feigns illness, and they flee the theater. <laughs> so, so I think there were many of these, those near misses where people suspect something and, mm-hmm. and just drop it. Because it's, it's, I got a lovely story, and I only see what I want to see. And, and I don't blame people. I, I want to tell them the human mind is easily hacked. Samji was back at the BC Securities Commission for another interview, almost 18 months after the first. October 16th, 2013. Her life had changed a lot. During that time, she had moved out of her penthouse condo on West 15th Avenue in Vancouver. Her jewelry, estimated at $14,000, was about to be auctioned off. And the investigators knew a lot more. That the scheme had started in 2003, not 2008 or 2010, as Samji had variously claimed. The money invested was not $3 million or $34 million, but pushing $100 million. The number of investors were not 25 or 75-ish or 100, but over 200. This time Samji brought a lawyer, Rod Anderson, who is well known around here for defending those accused of white-collar crimes. This transcript makes for fine reading, a satisfying follow-up to part one. Samji surprises both the commission lawyers and her defense counsel by continually offering far more information than necessary. Her scheme sounds increasingly bizarre. She claims in 2003, while in hospital recovering from cancer surgery, she herself was defrauded over the phone in a real estate scam in which she lost $400,000. She turned to a friend who offered to lend her the money if she paid him back double. 
within six months. He hatched the scheme to accomplish that, she alleged. An international financier and even a government minister from the Congo got involved, she said. All this obviously drives Anderson crazy. Almost as much as the fact that he believes that the first interview was off the record. This despite the fact that the first line of the first transcript in the first interview records lawyer Pazunti stating, Okay, we're on the record now. And maybe you recall that last line of the interview. I don't know if I want this on the record. Do you mind switching it off? Nevertheless, Anderson says commission staff had noted somewhere that the interview was off the record. Throughout the second hearing, Anderson repeatedly spars with the other lawyers who ignore his objections on this point and continue to ask Samji questions, referring to the earlier interview. And Samji largely ignores Anderson's advice, much to his frustration. Lyon asks Samji how the scheme was hatched as the Mark Anthony Wine investment. Samji says the colleague who loaned her the $400,000 had once gone with her when she did some notary work for Mark Anthony, and that inspired him. Lyon asks her who that was. It was a gentleman by the name of Mr. Chatur. I knew Mr. Chatur from my conveyancing days. He was involved in a number of real estate projects as a developer. That's how I got to know him. We had a good, cordial, good relationship. In 2003... Anderson interrupts, telling Samji, Okay, just stop. Just let her ask the questions. I don't want to get any further into that. But the cat's out of the bag. Chatur's alleged role as mastermind remains something of a mystery. They had known each other for decades. Like Samji's family, Chatur's was also originally from Uganda, part of the Ismaili population that was driven out of the country by Idi Amin in the 1970s. He died in 2013, nine months after Samji's first interview at the BCSC. At the Law Courts Registry in downtown Vancouver, there's a hefty file of documents detailing how Chatur made money on the scam, and how the trustee for the civil suit tried to get some of it back. He, some family, and associates had invested about $4 million in the scheme and received payments of $12 million or more in return. I'll open up that file and let you know what's inside in a subsequent episode. It's mainly photocopies of bank drafts for 20 or 50 or hundred grand. Nice even numbers. Essentially, Samji claimed, when Chatur called and said he needed twenty or fifty or a hundred thousand dollars, she just paid it to him. There was no system or logic to it. If I had cash, I gave it to him. If not, I withdrew it from the Royal Bank. Same went for Arvind Patel. Samji alleged that he'd often bring investors' money in, in cash and take a chunk of cash here and there. No system or logic to it, allegedly. Patel, however, claimed that he never took any commissions 
or kickbacks. So I guess Patel was what? Volunteer coordinator for the project? We'll attempt to answer that question in our next episode. We'll dig into Patel's role in the scheme. Here's another bit from Samji's 2013 interview with the BCSC lawyers. It reflects not just on Patel and Chatur, but also a handful of others who made money in the scheme. Samji said that some of them knew very well what was going on. Sherman Lyon asked about how they knew. Without it being formally said or put in writing, these are people who knew that you couldn't have an investment return of 30 to 40 percent without something being amiss there. I say this because they are seasoned people, not uneducated people, and it wouldn't take a rocket scientist to figure some of this out. At the same time Samji is selling herself as a victim, she seems to be selling out others as co-conspirators. A victim who enjoys the fruits of her victimhood to the tune of $10 million, with a penthouse suite and a Buddha statue on her desk, a woman with an ongoing cancer battle who seduced a co-conspirator into the scheme while his wife lost the cancer battle. Is this a psychopathic or sociopathic profile? Is she a monster? In 2016, Samji's criminal trial lawyer, Richard Peck, put the suicide detail forward in his argument for leniency prior to her being sentenced. It was one circumstance in a long list that detailed Samji's harsh crash. She had been ostracized by family and community, Peck said. Suffered the stigma of being labeled a fraudster. The humiliation of the media glare was compounded by journalists latching on to the ironic label of the Magic Lady, which is how a colleague referred to her back in the boom years. She was suffering from depression, an ongoing cancer battle, and other health issues, had to care for her father, who was suffering from dementia. She had lost her property and most possessions to the bankruptcy trustee. She was working a front desk job at a small hotel for $14 per hour. She couldn't get a bank account, so she had to cash her checks at a money mart. Samji read a short statement of regret prior to the sentencing. Your Honor, she said, there's no right way to do wrong. This thought haunts me night and day. The clocks cannot be turned back. It might sound futile, but I'm truly sorry for the loss, pain, and grief endured by the investors. She said she prays she will be forgiven for, quote, the sad and unfortunate situation. Samji pleaded guilty to 14 counts of fraud over $5,000. There were, of course, 200 other people who lost their money in the scam, but these 14 people represented all of them. 
The 14 named in the case were mainly couples who had lost in the range of $40,000 to $150,000. Two men lost $312,000 and $424,000, respectively. Another couple lost nearly $800,000, and a Dr. Manning and his medical practice lost just over $8.1 million. Crown Prosecutor Kevin Marks read from 11 victim impact statements, including one from Dr. Manning, who said, I feel ashamed and embarrassed for allowing myself to be so gullible. Another, a retired teacher, said, At this age and stage of my life, it's financially impossible to recover. The Crown argued for a seven to eight year sentence while Peck asked for four to five years. In his reasons for sentencing, Judge Rideout said, quote, this planned, premeditated, and complex scheme was in operation for nine years, and that the stigma Samji suffered as a result, quote, only reflects the social repugnance of her misconduct. Rideout sentenced her to six years in a federal penitentiary, ordered her to submit a DNA sample, and pay restitution for the 14 named victims in the case. If the Supreme Court of Canada this year decides not to hear Samji's appeal on the double jeopardy matter, she'll have to do time, but not much. People convicted for nonviolent offenses are eligible for parole after serving one-third of their sentence. I wondered if seeing Samji jailed would actually give her victims any satisfaction at all. Christine Dow has wrestled with that question. Is minimal jail time going to be productive in any way for Samji, for the victims, or for society at large? Dow imagined, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, a personal service solution. Like my sister and I were talking about Rashida and white-collar crime, and we were discussing if Rashida would get jail time or community service, and I told my sister what good was her jail time or community service to me. Then my sister asked me what I would be satisfied with, and I thought about it and said I would like her to clean my house on a weekly basis. That would be... One way of her paying me back and the money she took from me, and I would have the satisfaction of a clean house. I spoke to another victim, an elderly woman who wished to remain anonymous. She and her husband moved to the Vancouver area to enjoy a financially secure retirement away from Eastern Canadian blizzards. But they happened to land in Patel's office at Coast Capital. Their life savings were wiped out. They suffered extensive health problems in the fallout of the scam. She thinks about sentences given to white-collar criminals in the UK or United States, like Madoff and his 150-year sentence. She told me, I don't know what kind of law is here. It's a very kind country. Human rights this, human rights that. But the justice system is nothing, nothing, nothing. People do so many bad things, 
and they just get away with it. While her own freedom has been curtailed by financial loss and depression, she's appalled by Samji's relative freedom. She said, And you know, I think it's two or three years now that she's been appealing, appealing, appealing. And now she says, Oh, my old father, he's sick. I have to look after him. My name is Diana Henriquez. As an investigative reporter for the New York Times, I had been covering the Bernie Madoff scandal from the day it began. That clip is from the opening of Barry Levinson's HBO movie, starring Robert De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer, The Wizard of Lies. It was adapted from Enrique's best-selling book of the same name. After years of covering the story in painstaking detail and finally interviewing Madoff, Enriquez concluded that to profile a fraudster as a monster, someone less than human, is exactly what makes us continually susceptible to them. It's comforting for us to look at it that way. In the book's epilogue, she writes, The Madoff case demonstrated with brutal clarity another truth that we simply do not want to face about the Ponzi schemer in our midst. He is not other than us, or different from us. He's just like us, only more so. Enriquez argues that our capacity to lie, especially to ourselves, and hurt others are essential human traits. And so is our willingness to lap up praise. A white-collar criminal just taps those wells to a greater depth than most of us. While the Ponzi scheme is up and running, everyone feels great. No one looks like a victim. It's not like sticking a knife into someone to steal a wallet, or bashing someone's skull to grab a luxury car or kidnapping someone's child at gunpoint, she writes. You don't see the terrified faces, the blood, the horror, the loss. At first, all you see is the gratitude. It is the crime of the egotist, not the sadist. One need not enjoy others' pain to run a Ponzi scheme. Until the end, there is no pain. One is helping, not hurting. Enriquez caps off her assessment with this. To insist, as so many of his victims have, that Bernie Madoff was not fully human, that he was a beast, a psychopath, is a facile cop-out. One last comforting delusion that will leave us forever vulnerable to the seductive spells that all Ponzi schemers cast. So, while we're watching out for obviously suspicious scoundrels from outside of our community of trust, we're picking canapes off the same plate as the charming Rashida Samji, or eating donuts with the avuncular Arvind Patel. The victim of Rashida Samji's scheme might have some issues with this analysis. I'm not fully convinced that there isn't a greater psychological divide between myself and Madoff or Samji, but I'm willing to explore it further. 
In the next episode, we'll look at Arvind Patel's story. go to their kids' weddings. He was a victim of his own salesmanship, you know, in a sense. I honestly sat there for days on end trying to figure out what the hell made him tick. And I just, you know, he was a complete enigma. Complete enigma. Hi, I'm Gavin Chima, one of the researchers for Victim Impact. If you liked what you heard online in this episode and want to hear how the story will unfold, please make your gift online at conspiracy.ca now. Our goal is to raise $2,500. We need the support of our listeners, that's you, to continue research and writing of this story. Victim Impact is researched and written by myself, Tim Carlson, with additional research by assistant Gavin Chima and Kathleen Flaherty. Kathleen is also co-producer and editor. Co-producer David Messiha composed the original music and engineered the recording. We'll be uploading episodes regularly in the lead-up to the production of the stage play Victim Impact at the Culture in Vancouver in June. Tickets are on sale now. Go to www.conspiracy.ca for more information.